Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Lee Sullivan is a head of PE from Slough in the UK who believes that the subject of PE has the power to be so much more. Lee is an advocate of creating a positive and meaningful learning environment that better nurtures physical literacy and develops positive attitudes towards physical activity. Lee is a popular man at the moment and he's spoken on a variety of platforms about his recently published book, Is PE in Crisis? So, Lee, welcome to the show and thanks for fitting us into your busy schedule. Hey, Lee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's an honour to be here. Thanks, Lee. So the book's really taken off. Can we start by explaining to our listeners a little bit more about your motivation for writing the book? Yeah, I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the response, but I I guess the actual start of it isn't, um, well, it's quite selfish, if I'm honest. It, was, it wasn't to get any kind of messaging out there. It was really just to align my own thinking and started from, I guess, for want of a better word, a bit of a, a, bit of a dark place because I was in a, um, I was head of PE and uh, in a, in a genuinely a fantastic school. And I've taught PE at that point for a number of years, the same, you know, the same sport focused delivery that we had our training that we probably delivered uh, that we probably received when we were at school and I was bored I was frustrated I was not seeing much impact I was seeing the same students for extracurricular and those students were taking part in sport outside of school um, as well you know I, I just I was really questioning my impact and I'm a, a massive advocate of leaving a legacy and I love the idea of you know what the all blacks do of leaving the shirt in a better place and I was just sitting there thinking what have I done what impact have I have I made what am I doing here the, the same students are thriving the same students are falling back um and and ultimately <clears throat> I'll, I'll be completely honest I actually sat there one day got my laptop out and just typed in transferable skills for teaching you know where else can you go to make an impact and I'm, I'm really open and honest about my why, my reason for doing what I do. And that is to prepare students for life through physical education. And through loads of reflection, and I talk about it in the book as well, about I, I did a student voice. I asked students, why does PE exist at Upton Court Grammar School? And I got loads of different kind of generic wishy-washy answers none of them necessarily wrong lots of answers like you know it's nice to get out of the classroom it's nice to uh, be with friends it's nice to get a bit of fitness in but genuinely I could have asked a number of different why does a number of different subjects exist or what, why does lunchtime exist and I would have got the same uh, the same answers and so nothing really specific to PE and I was being told by my students I was being shown in my own observations that I wasn't making an impact and students didn't value PE or understand why it exists and so I, I wanted to change it I could either leave and as I say I even typed into my computer what, what else I could do and 
I, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I, I, I knew that I was born to be a teacher. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I thought I either change it or I, or I shut up and either leave or just get on with it. And so that's what I started to do. I started to, to try and change it, but I failed miserably about 10 times. I, I knew that I wanted to prepare students for life. And I knew that I wanted, even though at the time I didn't know this idea of a concept curriculum, but I knew that I wanted to um, deliver life skills through PE. And so I put together a, a curriculum in where we did it first through sports education um, and where we were trying to deliver different life skills. But I saw that the way I was delivering it was not the same way as other people in my team were delivering it. I was seeing that we were really loosely applying it and sometimes it didn't really transfer into the physical education setting and uh, it just it wasn't making the desired impact it wasn't great and so I went back to the drawing board again a few times I knew that that's what I wanted but so basically long story short I was frustrated and I was in a place of what, what where is Pete going what do I want to achieve with it and so I, I got a pen and paper out and just listed my frustrations and started to do a bit of reading and so where I had the problem on one side of the page, I was kind of looking at and just writing, reading that I was researching into and other things and just trying to find out what would be the solution to that issue. So if I'm not meeting, if students don't value PE, what would they value? If, if you know, students aren't coming to extracurricular club, why? What, what, what could I do that is going to enable them to, to do that? And um and that's kind of where the book started was uh, uh, in a dark place where I was frustrated, but then trying to be a little bit more solution focused. And then and then from there, it, it went even further to be um, to, to getting on paper these solutions and really looking into them and then developing because ultimately it never really started as a book. It started as how am I going to go into my department, to my SLT and sell my vision? What's the research I'm going to need to back up my arguments? If, if I want to go to a concept-driven curriculum, what am I going to need to tell people? So I started looking up at statistics, why PE isn't working, why it's not meeting our needs, doing student voice, tell me, them telling me what they think about it. And then, so I was, I was almost building an argument. And as I say, for selfish reasons, I was doing it to develop my own thinking. And then from, from there, it... I guess then lockdown happened. So I'd failed miserably with, with my life skills lessons and then lockdown happened and I, I was introduced to you two. I was introduced to people like Will Swaves. I was introduced to so many different conferences, Julie Stern, the work that she was doing around conceptual learning and then from there, Lynn Erickson. And then it went to people like Margaret Whitehead, Liz uh, Durden Myers and the work that P Scholar are doing. I was just introduced to so many people that I never ever would have had a chance to, to kind of even virtually meet. And it then pushed me to, to different, different avenues. And I do believe that COVID was awful for so many reasons, but I am in, in some way grateful for the time that I got to meet people like you. And I, and I said before this podcast started that just in, in conversation, you and you, uh, Lewis and, and Alan, we all spoke about 18 months ago, because uh, for those that aren't aware, Lewis and Alan have, have made a huge contribution to the book and even wrote a whole chapter and, and case study. 
And um, I, I was aware I was delivering life skills, but I didn't know it was conceptual learning. And it was Lewis and Alan that actually pointed me to this idea of conceptual learning and pointed me to the work of Julie Stern, etc. So I'm really grateful for the time I got through COVID. And it was then meeting and networking with so many people online that then actually I started to realise this is more than just me writing down my arguments this is more than me just writing down my research and also i realized that my frustrations were shared by loads of other people loads of other people were actually driving change especially in the international schools doing some fantastic work and loads of people were driving change and i wasn't aware of that and actually you know my frustrations were shared by loads of people and so therefore i started to think well if i'm feeling this and i'm finding some solutions then maybe that might be useful to other people and and that's that's you know in a really long-winded answer that's kind of where it started and and how it went from just me being selfish getting down ideas and then being solution focused and trying to sell my ideas to my own slt in school to something more of a guesser formal formalized book yeah, and your journey there is really interesting and you've talked about a few seminal moments along the way of like being in that dark place, feeling the frustrations, questioning yourself, making your list and that sort of metacognition behind trying to work out what you're thinking. And then you've took that forward into this situation where lockdown has presented an opportunity and that's helped you to formulate your ideas. And I think that kind of journey a lot of people can resonate with. I think the bit that maybe I'd ask for a bit more on is People go through those journeys and come out with solutions and outcomes, but they don't write books. What what actually <laughs> made you think to yourself, do you know what, this this is really useful. What, what was that light bulb moment that made you think, I could share this and then this would be really useful to other people as well, or, or, or your motivation behind actually having the courage to, to share such what is quite a personal story, isn't it? It's the idea of courage. I'll be honest, I never in my wildest dreams imagined um, one, even finding a publisher. Um, I never imagined it being, because I know that you can self-publish. I don't know much about that, but I know that you can self-publish. Um, but this idea of being brave, I never, the only time I ever felt actually that was a brave thing to do was on the day I got the email from Scholarly, the publisher saying it's out there. And then I thought, oh no, that actually I feel quite vulnerable. <laughs> um, and that's when I thought, you know, well, may maybe I guess it's a brave thing to do. I didn't feel brave at the time. I felt really nervous and quite, um, yeah, quite vulnerable. People are now going to comment about it. Um, so to answer your question, Louis, I don't know if I ever had that light bulb moment of yeah. this is really going to be one people are really going to want to read this or I knew that it was going to be useful. I, I, I really believed in the concept curriculum. I really believed that PE had to change. I'm passionate about that. And in the book, I don't just talk about curriculum. I talk about pedagogy. I talk about physical literacy. I talk about um, holistic assessment. So I try to look at the totality of a student experience. And I, I truly believed in every single one of those points. Um, and I, and I, I don't think I ever had that moment where, you know, this is going to change PE for a lot of people. But I knew that it would be useful. And honestly... In, t in terms of people reading it, I thought the people that contributed to the book might want to read it because, you know, it's always nice to, to read your, your work in print. Uh, but in terms of a wider audience, I never imagined that it would 
reach much of a, a wider audience and that people would necessarily care. But it seems to have really resonated with loads of people, um, which is fantastic. I want to touch upon the feelings there, Lee. You talked about that vulnerability. and I'd be interested to explore here about how you felt at the start, during, and then after, because I'm sure it's a mixed range of feelings when you're writing a book. I've not done it yet. I'd like to. And there's a lady, um, in fact, it's a guy that, that talks about, Chris Hitchin is a famous journalist. There's a book in everybody, he says. And I believe there is. So those feelings before, during, after, tell us a little bit about that. Do you mean of publishing, Alan, when it, when it was published? Yeah, so du during that start of writing it, then in that messy middle maybe where you're like, oh, I've got myself into yeah. writing a book. And then at that end when it's published. Yeah, the, the start of writing it was, if I could just draw on this screen now a massive squiggle of just complete chaos and um, <laughs> into you know, interleaving ideas. And, and that, that's pretty much what it was. I tried to keep it as organised as possible. And actually, when I was writing the book, I, I would often, I was reading, and I've never done so much reading in my life, uh, you know, so hours and hours. I probably did, spent more time reading than writing, but I was often going from one chapter to another chapter to another. So I didn't write from start to finish, as you would expect. <clears throat> I actually wrote, um, <clears throat> obviously, my my I think chapter two it is where I talk about the need for change <clears throat> I actually wrote that long before I wrote other stuff uh, and then I and then I, I you know I, so I jumped back and forwards and then as I was reading something else and thinking actually I could adapt it in this way or that's an important point that people should know uh, so I was jumping from chapter to chapter um so that it was a real um so Will Swaves and people should absolutely I know he's done a podcast with you before so absolutely watch that he's brilliant and what he does is he can sometimes take all of this thinking and just join it into one lovely easy to remember acronym or, or just he just is brilliant at pointing out people's visions and I had a few conversations with him so he could align my thinking sometimes and I do think out loud and I do um, sometimes I was in that learning pit so I was just getting loads of ideas down and it was chaos. Then as I started in the middle of it, as you say, and I started to share my work a little bit and share more of the ideas. And I think that's probably actually at the time I got you both involved was probably around the middle of this process of this is, I, I now know what needs to change. I now know how it needs to change. Can you now tell me your ideas? And actually I was a lot more sure of myself then and so approaching people like you um, and approaching, I've got some unbelievable contributors to this book, people that are known, you know, social, in the social media or, or have delivered some brilliant change. It was approaching those and saying, actually, this is my idea. I think our values align. Would you like to contribute? And it was then joining the dots. But I was really sure that I didn't want to. It couldn't just be my voice. And, I, and I'm really open about the fact if you read my book and my ideas don't work for you I promise you there will be somebody else's ideas in there that will resonate with you and so sharing your ideas sh sharing the work of uh, Simon Bradbury around assessment and um, Will Swayze around curriculum design um, Tom Brush around how he delivers his uh, curriculum there's so many fantastic contributors in this in this book and that was really so the middle was just aligning and, and getting all of that vision out for everybody and then the end 
was where I just spoke about where the is the most vulnerable I ever I ever felt probably in my in my life other than you know when you hold your baby for the first time and you're like I have no idea what I'm doing here <laughs> I kind of felt a little bit like that like I've I've worked so hard to create something I really believe in it what if others don't and I, and I was um I, I just felt as I say really vulnerable it was really interesting actually that following that and after a couple of weeks when I when I saw people were commenting and saying that they bought it and it resonated that my whole mindset changed to one of being really vulnerable to almost being yeah do you know what I, I do believe in this if people don't like it that's fine they don't have to like it I, and and uh, to, to, to now I, I actually sometimes encourage the debate and so, uh, on my Twitter if you follow me on Twitter then you'll see that I, I'm addressing misconceptions um, um, now those people that are challenging me I feel fine to say well no I see your point but actually th this is our experiences or this is how it's worked for us so I'm now addressing those misconceptions um, so I've gone from a real a real kind of you know the learning curve of up down up down I guess I think I'm really interested in hearing what you said there about you know holding your baby for the first time and feeling so vulnerable and in that sort of during phase you talked essentially about a tribe of people that really supported you how important was that tribe and the confidence that you had from them when when you became really vulnerable and when that book came out if it wasn't for those people I, it, there wouldn't be a book if it wasn't for those people and you know i've spoken about you for example if it wasn't for you to direct to me in the in the direction that you did i'm not sure that there'd be the concept curriculum that i deliver right now it you need those network of people around you to sometimes, um, one, reassure you, two, share their, their work and comment and feedback constructively on your work and to align that thinking. Um, but but and, and to challenge your thinking as well. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being challenged and, and saying, well, this might not work for that reason. But, but honestly, even just much closer to home, my girlfriend my kids and during lockdown lockdown was a tough time and i'll, I'll be honest i i used the book as well as a little way as a coping mechanism to get through lockdown and it was a, a tough a tough time and i know a lot of people's mental health struggled and i'm somebody that needs to constantly be on the move and constantly need to be on something i love being in that learning pit honestly and so the book was kind of that for me but if it wasn't for my girlfriend if it wasn't for her and it was happening outside this room now is exactly the same as lockdown where she is working harder out there looking after our kids and and being that support than i am in here and um i'm truly appreciate appreciative of that network never ever underestimate the power of collaboration and a support network it is it is truly um the, the most powerful thing you can have in any project you're doing never go it alone always always lean on, on your support network it's interesting i'm just i'm just thinking back when i first started teaching departments across even just local authorities would never ever collaborate because you might be playing against them at the weekend and during yeah. the weekend they didn't want someone who's been sharing ideas because they'd end up beating you and that was the culture and, and I, to a certain extent i think right up until covid unless you were in a very good professional learning community, there still wasn't a lot of shared product going on across the world. So you talk there about the importance of networks. 
do you think you could have done this, Lee, without without COVID? Do you think you could have done it without that network of international no. people? I, I, with all due respect, I mean, I know people have shared your podcast and I may have stumbled across your podcast when doing some research or anything, but if it wasn't for COVID, I never would have met you too. I never would have um, had the opportunity to, to join some of the uh, webinars that you were involved in and so many other people, you know, I've mentioned a few times, Will Swaves, Liz Dodemeyer's a Peace Scholar, would I have ever had the opportunity? So I don't think any of this would have existed, honestly. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that about the importance of a network. And I think as a head of PE, whenever you're creating something, whenever you want to lead change, if you go it alone, it won't work. It really won't work. And Matt Bowler actually talks about the uh, IKEA effect. And I, I truly believe in this. And actually I was talking to a head of department about this yesterday because she had this vision for change and, and a couple of her department maybe weren't quite on board. So you can never do it on your own. And so he talks about this IKEA effect. And it's so true. If you go to IKEA and you buy a flat pack piece of furniture, it means nothing to you. However, if you put that flat pack piece of furniture together and spend hours creating it and building it and following the instructions and, you know, hitting your finger with a hammer and whatever, getting annoyed with your children for running off with the screws, then <laughs> you, you care. All of a sudden, you really care about that flat pack piece of furniture because you feel like you've created it. And that's the same when trying to lead change. If you want to put together a new piece of assessment, if you want to build a curriculum, if you do it on your own, it means a lot to you. But if you get your team involved in that creation and you incorporate everybody's why and you, you know, really bring your objectives together, then when you are rolling it out and you're implementing it, it, it means so much more to so many people and you've got so much more success. And I think going back to the book, the fact that so many people helped create this, I hope that they feel some ownership over it. I, I hope that you two feel some ownership over this book and, and the contribution and not just the success of it, but the reach of it and the impact of it. Um, and so I hope a lot of contributors have that. And, and as I say, yeah, the, the networking absolutely helps help with that success. So trying to one side for a minute, if, if we explore this IKEA effect, and by the way, I love that. I'm definitely using the IKEA effect. It's not, it's not mine, I'll be honest. It's not mine. I can't take credit. I'm, I'm using yeah, that. Magpie it. Magpie, we're all magpies. Yeah, Matt, Matt Bowler. Well, well done, Matt Bowler. I'll use that one as a little light bulb in the future. But, you know, to, to almost extend that analogy, when you've put that together and you've put up your wardrobe, your desk or whatever, there is... You know, there's an investment in the feeling of what it looks like, but you're also quite proud. Now, you, you've been incredibly modest for the last 10 minutes to tell us all about all the people that helped you, but you've brought this together. And you, it was interesting to hear that in the, the question Alan asked you about, you know, at the start of the book and the during and the after, even in the after sort of it was published phase, you talked about vulnerability. You talked about them being able to believe in yourself and, and address misconceptions, have the confidence to do that. Is there some pride there as well, Lee? Oh, uh of course, I'm, I'm really, I think what, what I'm proud of, uh, writing the book is one thing and it took hours and I, and I, and I think when um, uh, it was published and I, the publisher told me that they wanted to publish it, of course I was really proud that somebody believed in this, but what I'm, I'm genuinely most proud of is those conversations now, the, the people that are tweeting saying, you, you've made me think about our own 
that's what you know our own delivery that's what i'm so so proud of is that people are um are just at the very least discussing even those people that are you know your traditional we should still be delivering sports they're still engaging in that conversation now they're still trying to argue their point which is it means that there's been some conversation that has been ignited and i'm really i'm proud that the book and what is in the book has ignited that conversation that you know i i said at the beginning of this podcast i'm really i'm a huge advocate of of legacy of what your legacy is and I, i'm proud of now i can sit here and feel like well there's a few departments i know that have now implemented change because of the book that that's a that's a legacy and you know hopefully those students whoever even at my school those students now i think if you ask a lot of adults what what did you think about pe now of course we would have a different answer we are probably our sports enthusiasts we probably had a really great time in pe but if you ask a lot of adults and a lot of senior leaders as well what was your experiences of pe i don't think it's positive a lot of people had, had not fantastic, you know, brilliant um, experiences of PE, which is a real shame. And then that will have a knock on effect through life. So what I'm really hoping for is that the impact and the legacy will actually be realised in 20 years time when these students leave school and they're asked or, or they're one, they're still physically active. They still enjoy being physically active. They still they understand what motivates them to be physically active. But if you ask them, you know, what was your experiences of PE? And they're like, no, I love PE. I really enjoyed it. That that for me is a real legacy. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think in terms of you know asking about pride, that 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 makes me proud to to know to feel that there could be that impact not just now but in twenty years time for all of the students that experience the the change that is kind of uh, asked for with this book. That's the that's the thing, Lee. It with with your whole ethos and the whole transferable skills. They're not actually they're not actually measurable in the sense of exam results. They, they, we're planting trees that we, we might never see grow. That's an analogy that we like to use. Now, in, in your book, I know you presented uh, sort of thinking points. You didn't give solutions. You gave people time to think. Here are examples. Go and use them if you wish. Now, do you now feel as if the book has given you social capital within our world of PE now where you can actually go on and show confidence that, you know what, I'm, I'm all right. I can do this job. I, and it's given you a platform to then extend beyond the book. Yeah. I, I, I'm really fortunate, Alan, to be honest, um, that people are asking me, they're, they're you know, tweeting or, or messaging or emailing and, and asking for advice and everything. And I, and I, I take that, that, that there's a huge amount of responsibility with that. And I, and I take it really seriously. And um, I would be lying if I said that my, uh, you know, I, I would love to at some point be in schools, really help them to, to realise their vision. And I think that was, you made a, a point in your question there about me, so, you know, I, I am asking lots of challenging questions in the book. And I, I do like to think I've provided some solutions, but what I would also say is that often one size doesn't fit all. And so as much as I'm, I'm writing an assessment, you'll notice that the, the assessment that I share is completely specific to my school. So it's not that you can just take that and, and apply it. And it's the curriculum, uh, you know, have been written to meet the needs of my students. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think 
the needs of the students across the board as there's a lot of similar needs um, but ultimately every school is different students in every school are different so these challenging questions and the direction that i hopefully provide um, and along with the platform that you just mentioned the fact that you can come to me and ask me questions and i am open to coming to to help you deliver that that vision um, it is so that you realize your vision and your vision for PE is so important to your school and your students and your students are so important to realizing that vision that I do see this a lot with Twitter. And I will say Twitter, especially the PE um, platform is brilliant. And, and I know that other subjects and, you know, Twitter can actually be quite a, uh, a spiteful place. But the PE side of it isn't. The PE side is just brilliant of sharing great ideas and, and talking to people. And that's outstanding. But um, you can't just go onto Twitter, take that resource or take that assessment and use it as it is. Because one, it might not align with your why. It might not align with your vision. And two, it might not meet the, meet the needs of your kids. And it's very easy just to take that and think, right, there you go. That's done. But it isn't you and that's what i hope the book does and that's what i hope that platform that I, you just asked me about alan i hope that is what i'm able to do is actually say so this is my why this is my vision now let me help you realize your why and your vision and then let's create your assessment model through that let's create your curriculum through that um and that's that's really important and i share and that's also the reason why i try and share as many ideas as i can so that it gives the leaders um, lots to draw on so that when they're creating their their own that they've got lots of really good examples but that they are still using that not to take it steal it and run with it and but to to apply it to their vision and that and ultimately that's really strong leadership is is not just taking somebody else it's a, you know applying it to what your values are um, and your vision is so that's what I hope that the book can do and hopefully the platform that the book has provided will will help other leaders realize what it is you know what motivates them and their, their vision you're totally right Lewis and I often talk about a cookie cutter approach and how people are often quite lazy they'd rather just say well what are you doing send me your schemes of work send me this send me that and, and then they just try and do it for their context and we had a we had a guest a number of months ago called Darcy Lunn and, and he talked about a phrase that we often adopt now, that the, the context provides the narrative. Yeah, I watched that brilliant, brilliant podcast. And I, I will emphasise slightly with the PE teachers and those that are, are just trying to look for that quick fix because we are busy. Schools are crazy places. And, and wherever we can get a quick win, I completely understand. But when it comes to um, things like assessment, curriculum, um, honestly, it, I don't think there is a quick win it is about really taking the time and and developing something really worthwhile yeah and, and how often do we speak to, to children about the idea of the metacognition of them thinking about the thinking and that's that's very much essentially what you're trying to get across to the to the teaching population and i agree with you through twitter for, for pe and education from my perspective is incredibly supportive and it does throw up more questions than it answers and i think that's a really healthy thing and I think your book, without a doubt, and I think your book does that exceptionally well. And I, I want to just start to have a little look. I know um, Alan mentioned earlier Chris Hitchens about there's a book in everyone, and 
every time we have a guest on, you know, we do take some time to do a bit of research around the sort of subjects we're going to talk about. And I stumbled upon um, a blog by a guy called Jeff Goins, and, and it was about why everybody should write a book. And he identifies six different reasons why. And I just want to share these with you. And if you could tell me which one really speaks to you and which one you think, yeah, that, that, that's a real big deal for me. He says you should write a book because it's hard. It's a really, really challenging thing to do. It's humbling. It will kill your cynicism. It'll teach you a lot about yourself. It's the best way to share a story. And the book that you write is better than the book that you dreamed of writing but never actually did. Love that, Lewis. Love that. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously the the uh, the context within each of those is 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 reflected upon in much more detail in the actual blog that he's written. But is there one of those that really jumps out to you, Lee? Yeah, there is the 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 one that you said where it teaches you about yourself. Um, it there's no there's no quick way of writing a book, and. Mm -hmm. If it's you've got to you've got to research. If you're going to put it out there, you've got to put in the hard yards. And um, I'll be honest, when I say teaching me about teaching it about myself, what what I also want to say is teaching me about what it is I love, which is PE. I, I'm passionate about PE. I love PE. Um, and what I will say is there was an element of of almost guilt that when I was researching the book. There was an element of guilt that I didn't know this stuff before. So I am teaching PE. I'm trying to, to share my passion for PE, not just with the students, but also with trainee teachers, with um, the teachers in my department and those that I collaborate with locally or, or even internationally in that case. And I almost felt a little bit of a fraud that I was. Um, and hopefully I try to cover as much of that knowledge in, in the book as I can. I felt a bit of a fraud that I didn't know as much about why we assess as I should do or actually do you know what the most important thing I didn't know the evolution of PE I didn't know that the um where PE once started to where it kind of is is going now and there's a lot of information in the book um that I I didn't know before I started and I and I genuinely felt guilty I genuinely felt this like well I'm really glad I did this now because at least if somebody's asked me about PE I can say a little bit more about it and I'm sure that there's loads more you know infinite infinite learners there's there's we, there's more information than I'm ever going to be able to to learn and I love that we're never going to stop learning and and you know the book is hopefully just at the start of that but I felt guilty that there was loads about my subject and the delivery of my subject that I didn't know I, I will just add a point to that though and I'm digressing slightly so feel free to rein me back in I do think when it comes to knowing more about your subject and coming and learning more about how to deliver it and the real research, I do think one of the big issues that we have as people that are kind of on the front line is there is a big kind of gap at the moment between the research and the evidence and the actual practice. And um, that was um, one, of, one of the motivators as well. When I realised that I wanted this to be a book, it was that I wanted to bridge that gap a little bit because one, there's obviously a huge amount of evidence out there. Um, two, it's really hard to find. And when you do find it, you know, it makes me feel stupid sometimes because it's actually not only is it inaccessible in finding it, but it's actually quite inaccessible in understanding it. And then even if you can understand it, it's then even harder to know how do I apply this in my context? 
and and so that's really really difficult and so i guess what i try to do as much as i can is take that learning simplify it not so that other people could understand but so that i understood what was happening and then try to show what that looks like so when we come back to your original question lewis about you know teaching you about yourself and everything it, it was more not just about myself it was what i knew about what it is I, I always claimed to be passionate about and know quite a lot about and that was i think if i could urge anybody if they wanted to write a book or they're interested in writing a book you will leave it far more knowledgeable and also able to articulate much better what it is you're trying to achieve or what it is you're hoping for than if you don't write the book, if that, make, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And I, I want to sort of pull this around a little bit. You mentioned there about research evidence and practice and feeling stupid. And I think I, I've certainly put my hands up to say in terms of PD and professional development, that is a massive barrier to a lot of people, that feeling of being told something that they've been doing wrong for years and feeling stupid because of it. And I love that you've brought that out and you've brought that to life. And this, this reminds me of something I heard not long ago on a, on a, on a podcast by the motivational um, lady, Mel Robbins, who's written a few, a few different books. Um, she's phenomenal. And, and she really tries to take exactly what you just said, something that's ever so complicated and create really simple takeaways that people will remember. She's the lady behind the five second rule of, you know, if you want to make a decision and there's something you need to do, pause, five, four, three, two, one, move and go and do. And she talks about five, five how, in the mirror. yeah, the high the five, five in the mirror lady the mirror. every morning. Yeah. And, and the self-worth and things that come from that. She's super cool, right? I don't think I've ever used that phrase super cool before. We'll, 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 quickly, we'll quickly screen over that. But, um, she, she talks about how 90% of people are people that will think about ideas. There are people that have wonderful ideas, but they won't ever go any further. And less than 10% of people are actually people that will take action because of those ideas. So it almost suggests that there's this idea of thinking something, saying something, and then actually going and doing. And the chances of you making progress through each of those decrease depending on the steps. So many will think, not so much will say out loud because then that creates some accountability and then even fewer will actually go and do. So, so what was it that got you to do? What, what was the thing that got you to actually go and do this? I think, I think a lot of that comes down to mindset, if I'm honest. So um, I think it's Andy, I want to say Andy Coe, The Art of Being Brilliant. Um, talks about two percenters and this idea of having the mindset of there are those people and I'll be honest I'm not in any way saying that I've not done this but there are those people you've, you've got a, a decision to make over what you do and how you feel about things so for example and this is not my analogy it's his but if you are at a red light you can be really annoyed that you're at the red light you can feel really frustrated that you're at the red light and um, you can let it then ruin the next couple of minutes of your day. Or, or you can, while sat at that red light, start to use it positively or, or, or basically not let it bother you. So you've got two decisions and, and you, it's your decision, it shapes how you feel about that current situation. You can either be really annoyed about that red light or you can, I'll just wait here and, and you know, use that time to listen to that podcast or whatever it is. Um, and that's that's really important. And the same mindset is if, you know, you've got a thousand pound in your bank account and you lose one pound, 
so often in our in our day to day uh, conversations with people or our reflections, we let a five minute moment ruin the rest of our day. But if we've got a thousand pound in a bank account and we lose one pound, we're not then just going to write, well, I don't care about the rest nine hundred ninety nine pound. We're not going to let it ruin the rest of our bank account. But we do sometimes let it ruin our day or we do sometimes let it ruin our um thoughts about something so a lot of it comes to mindset and I'll be honest I did have those moments where I thought about leaving I did have those moments where I was sat at the red light annoyed that that red light was stopping me going further I had those moments I had those conversations that I let ruin many more of my minutes than I should have done but then it got to the point where as I as I mentioned I either put up or shut up you either carry on and do nothing or you leave, or you change it. And so it was that, right, let's start researching now. If you want it changed, if you don't like where things are going, but you want to stay in teaching, what are you going to do? So I do think when you look at those small percentage of people that maybe do start to action it, and I will say in the PE community now, we are way more than 10%. In the PE community on Twitter and the messages I'm receiving, so many people are now trying to seek that change. And it's brilliant. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. It's um, yeah. You, you're going to be challenged. It's it's there's, it's not going to be nice in all of it. You're going to fail. That's that's uncomfortable in itself. But it's having that mindset and knowing that you're doing it for the right reasons and that you want change. You want that impact. And again, I'll say you want that legacy. You want to leave it in a better place. So I think Lewis, a lot of it comes down to, to mindset. Honestly. Yeah. You clarified the books obviously help you to clarify your your PE vision and what you want for your subject. I'm just I'm interested now just to go how that's helped you as a human. So we take away the work, take away the work aspect. How did that then shape your core values as a human being? What did you really get from it, and then what have developed as a result, or has it just stayed the same as what it was before? I think I'm far more empathetic now than I've ever been. And what, what I mean by that is previously when I was delivering that sport driven curriculum and, and, you know, not nurturing physical literacy, I was um, just focused on performance and just focused on ability. And I didn't understand at that point before the book that everybody has a different reason for being physically active everybody has a different motivation for being physically active the um sport england did a youth personalities piece of research under the skin and it identified six different youth personalities and again this this all came out through the book um and through that i realized that everyone has a different reason for being physically active and so that when when i saw people previously in my lessons not trying and um you know staying at the back of the class or, or not necessarily getting involved not wanting to get involved in the discussions or and things like that i think i was more frustrated at them than i was with myself you know why are they not getting involved what what they're not even trying in pe why are they not trying in pe but whereas now through the book and through the research i've now got far more empathy as to there are reasons for that maybe what i'm delivering doesn't motivate them and this idea of physical literacy and looking for lifelong engagement um we we've really got to fully support students in order to develop their physically physical literacy we've got to fully um support them in finding their intrinsic motivation for being physically active and one of the uh 
solutions, I guess. So one of my ideas that I use in the book is this idea of a personality pathway and giving the students autonomy and um, and finding their reasons for being physically active and understanding that actually a sport driven curriculum only meets the needs of really a, a very few of our students. In fact, that the research from Sport England shows that only 10% of our students are sports enthusiasts. And I'd probably hazard a guess that 90%, if not more, of our PE teachers are sports enthusiasts. So we're delivering a curriculum to those that already love PE or already love physical activity, are probably doing it outside of school, and therefore are not delivering a curriculum that's going to meet the needs of the, the remaining 90% of our students. And we weren't giving them choice. We weren't, you know, we want PE to be valued, but we weren't offering much of value to 90% of our students. So I think that idea of empathy towards what is it, what is it that we can do for you? Use it. I use student voice more now than I've ever used student voice. I let them guide our curriculum decisions, our personality pathway. They tell us their attitudes and motivations for being physically active. And we then put them in groups with like-minded individuals and allow them to democratically choose their uh, activity. So all of those that love competition and want to be competitive are in one group. Those that are actively turned off by competition are in another group. And those that maybe don't mind competition, but prefer to be with friends and to be social are in a, a different group. So we're, we're grouping by um, attitudes and motivations towards physical activity. And I think I no longer now sit there in a lesson or stand there, I should say, in a lesson. And I'm annoyed by those students not getting involved. I'm now empathetic to what their needs are. How can I better nurture their intrinsic motivation? How can I better offer something that meets their needs and, and their reasons for being uh, active, you know? And, and ultimately, if students aren't active, we can only really look at ourselves for that. And, and that, having that empathy to try and find out and dive in and, and speak to that student, how can I better meet your needs? It, it takes me back, Lewis, to the to the old merger between the two schools where I used to work in in Rotherham in South Yorkshire, where it, it was a pretty brutal merger between between these two schools. And I remember just we just gave the kids they didn't have options; they just got forced into a certain activity. And I can picture it now: all the behaviour, all, all all the hassle it was was just pointless when we could have just involved them in the whole process but that was not how things were done back then 20 years ago whatever it was but I cringe now I absolutely cringe having known what we're known and, and I suppose that's what you talked about earlier isn't it where uh, Alan sorry thought, sorry to interrupt you mate. So, sorry to interrupt you but you, you say that was happening 20 years ago I'm aware of a number of schools it's still happening in now but you're still just offering a sport-driven curriculum with no say from the student they're still assessing by practical ability um and it's this real um teaching uh, they call it teaching for the game i think or, or teaching for fitness as opposed to teaching for life and we need to be honest and alan you said it far better than i ever could that the the relevancy of the curriculum i think you use the analogy of the layup shot in basketball and i've yeah. used this okay. many times i've I've lost, lost that story, <laughs> <laughs> But it is. The layup shot 
doesn't mean we can't teach it. doesn't mean we lose sport. And that's one of the biggest common misconceptions I'm addressing. We're still as physically active as we've ever been. But the relevancy of our, of our learning is, is just so much more meaningful for the students. They're never going to need that layup shot unless they become an elite professional um, or play basketball um, to, a, to a better level. They're not going to need it, but they are going to need resiliency. They are going to need self-worth. They are going to need to understand the, how to cope with stress. So it's not only the empathy of their needs of why they want to engage, but it's also the understanding of what they are going to need. How can we best prepare them for life and deliver learning that meets everybody's needs, not just um, enhance, you know, we're not just being elite. And so it's not just 20 years ago. Uh, I still shudder at some of the stuff I see now of, of those people that maybe aren't engaged in that conversation. Completely right. Completely rightly. It's, it is frightening to, to think that there's still people out there that are not catering towards student needs. And I, I do get it. Sometimes context takes preference and facilities and so on. But we have a right to, to do what's best for students. We, we're going to wind it down now, Lee, and we're going to go towards our favourite fun questions towards the end. So I'll start with my favourite one. Three leaders that are alive that you'd love to go out for a meal with. Three leaders that are alive right now that I could take for a meal. I know you're probably wanting me to say some inspirational leaders from the past or some, <laughs> some inspiration, but I'm gonna I'm gonna change that. I'm gonna say I want three of the world leaders. Um, of the, obviously, I'm gonna have to say Boris Johnson and uh, you know because he's the UK leader currently and a couple of other world leaders. I want to sit him down. And I want to say, right, let's now give some clear direction as to what we want the future of PE to be. Let's let's. So I'm not looking for people that are necessarily have inspired me in the past. I want to get some world leaders sat down and say, this is what PE could be. Deliver it from the top or, you know, shout it from the rooftops. Make PE the central uh the, the central lesson subject for every single curriculum. And if you do that, we will reap the benefits in society, we will reap the benefits of mental health, obesity, all of these societal complex needs that we're throwing loads of money at. Let's focus on PE and let's show, and, and through PE and through a holistic view and meeting the needs of every student, I just think we can change the world. Uh, and so I would get, Three world leaders. I'm not. I, I can't give you specific names, but three influential world leaders. Sit them down and say, "Right, come on, guys, let's change PE and change the world for better through physical activity." And I think that I might have just answered the next question. The next question: If you were to hire a billboard at the next uh, a busy M25, what would you write on the billboard, Lee? Um, come on, you Spurs. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't waste my money, to be honest. I would, um, I don't know. I think, I think I would just challenge PE teachers. I would just ask them, what's your, what's going to be your legacy? I would want PE teachers to just think, how am I going to leave this subject in a better place than I found it? And it, and it isn't through just continuing with a sport driven curriculum. So I think across my billboard would just say, "E teachers, what is your legacy?" I think that's that's probably what I would I would write. And come on, you Spurs, just in small print at the bottom. And then maybe yeah, brackets in the bottom, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Last one, Lee. Um, are you reading anything, obviously, other than your own book, which I'm sure you've had the pleasure? Yeah, there's a fantastic book out there. Is King Prices. I'm actually at the moment. I'm, I'm actually throwing myself back into the learning pit, um, and the the concept curriculum has been really successful for secondary school for secondary schools. And I want to explore, um, you know, the options of that and and make as big an impact as I can. So I'm back into the learning pit, and I'm researching around. Um, how we learn to move, how we learn to, um, how we develop a love of movement. And so that's that's kind of where I'm immersing myself in at the moment. And I'm, I'm trying to find out how that can be used to, to have a, a curriculum for the really young, you know, the early, early foundation years, all the way up, up to 16 years. I want to complete a complete journey. And um, so, yeah, I'm trying to find out how, how do we learn to move? How do we learn to love to move? And how can I bring that to, to how can, you know, what impact can that make? Yeah, it's a cracking idea. Certainly secondary PE teachers have got to know where it all starts and what the foundation is. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Can you share with our viewers and, and listeners where they can find out more about you and where they can order your book? Yeah, so the, the book is obviously on Amazon, is Physical Education in, in, uh, in Crisis. Um, if you wanted to find out a little bit more on the concept curriculum, then just go onto the PE Scholar website and there's a, a launch video and, and you can find out what we're, uh, what we're about on there. Um, and, and also PE Scholar is a fantastic resource as well. Talking about bridging the gap for the, uh, the research and evidence for practice, PE Scholar is a great place to go for that. But also um, find me on Twitter. I think I'm Lee underscore Sullivan 85. Um, so feel free to, to message and, and uh, I'll try and support however I can. Top man, Lee. Thanks for your time today. Take care and good luck with whatever's next. Yeah, it's a real one, gents. And just just as we sign off, just a huge thank you for your contributions and what you're doing for the for the world of PE and the the learning that you're providing. And talking about bridging that gap, there's probably not many people out there doing uh, as as good a work as you are doing to really lead physical educators. So so well done to you, boys. Thanks, Pat. Very kind, mate. Take take care. For listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners Podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.